Knowing ourselves well can allow us to take forward strides towards shaping the future. However, when we also understand and appreciate those around us, it can create magic in teams and organizations, setting up the field for game-changing innovation. In this episode of Humans Now and Then, I speak to Alma Derricks, founder and managing partner of business and brand strategy company Rev, about knowing ourselves, understanding those around us, and why at this point in time, it's more important than ever that we bring our very best forward to shape a better future. The defensiveness and the polarization and the divisiveness is something that could set us back a hundred years if we're not careful. We've always needed innovation. We've always needed fresh thinking, but we seriously need all of our best athletes on the field at this moment in time. Alma Derricks is an accomplished business and brand strategist with over 20 years of experience building innovative new businesses at the edges of established media, entertainment, and consumer products companies. As the founder and managing partner of Rev, she partners with accomplished creators, entrepreneurs, and leadership teams to leverage their expertise into distinctive and profitable new ventures. So, want to learn more about how your team can come together to shape a better future? And are you curious about how I fared on the Bassett or personality profile? Yes, I am going to publicly share my results. So let's discuss. I'm Rebecca Scott, and this is Humans Now and Then. Alma Derricks, thank you for joining me. Thank you. I'm so glad to have you on. We had an amazing conversation several weeks ago about some of the work that you're doing. And your work is fascinating. Even just poking around your website at rev.la, <laughs> there's just a lot of great, inspiring content. It's energizing. You've worked with a lot of great companies. You have you know, worked from everything from brand transformation to helping people learn how to reduce conflict and work together better. So I think it's absolutely fascinating everything you've done. So tell a little bit about your story, if you wouldn't mind. No, sure. It's uh, thank you so much. It's uh, it's great to be here. It's always great to have this conversation. And I think, you know, it really resonated for you. And I think what's been fascinating about um, kind of stepping back and taking a more meta look at all the things I've done in my career, I think people are really interested in, in talking about it at that level, in addition to just the actual business piece of it, just the how of it and how it how you get it done day to day, how you manage teams. It's been fascinating um, to reflect on that. And that's really been the genesis of this work. Um, in terms of my career, I guess the quick overview is that I was a media kid back in high school. We had the head end for our cable network, our local cable station inside my high school. So I got bit early on with the broadcast journalism bug. I was producing live TV when I was 14 years old, and I knew I wanted to stay in that space. But eventually, by the time I finished college, I decided that I just didn't have the energy to chase the on-air component of it, largely because it involved moving to much, much, much smaller markets. I'm from Los Angeles. So when the reality set in that I'd be moving to very, very small towns to start my career, I think that really turned the tables for me. But I was still interested in media. And so I ended up getting an MBA and working at HBO right after business school. And I think that's where I really caught the bug too. In addition to the media piece of it, um, I worked directly for the, the chairman of HBO, the founder of HBO, Michael Fuchs. And my job really was to catch anything that didn't have a natural home at HBO in a normal division. So they were right at that time ramping up their new media, uh, their uh, original content 
businesses um, and really starting that hockey stick launch of all the great originals that we know today. And there were all sorts of things that came up like the Bryant Park Film Festival, which Michael created, which is an outdoor sit down, drive in movie sort of idea in Bryant Park, right in the center of Manhattan. And I produced the first two seasons of that based on a one liner. You know, we should let's show movies in the park. We should do that. It would be great. People can bring blankets and wine and watch a great movie in the park in the middle of the city. And so it, it really kicked off this, I think, a few themes that come together for me, which are about that working on the edges of companies, taking existing brands and audiences and customers and figuring out what other kinds of businesses that you can do with them. I think also the consulting pace of what I was doing became something that was a theme going forward because I think in terms of projects, I think in terms of project arcs. And so I do that whether I have a full-time role or whether I'm actually in a consulting role. So that's a piece of it. And so all of those things have kind of converged over my career from, you know, back in the 90s, being very involved in, in new media and digital and the internet as it was coming up. For me, too, another theme, I think, is, is this idea of going out beyond the edges of the paved road, you know, being the one to live on the edge of the company and look out and figure out what new opportunities are out there. In the mid-90s, the internet was that thing. And so that really set me off on a kind of interesting path of creating these new businesses on the edges. So, you know, that has spanned places like Paramount and brands like Star Trek, um, more recently places like Deloitte and Cirque du Soleil. So that's a quick thumbnail. Yeah, that, that's amazing. And I got to say, your career trajectory just sounds, not even does it sound awesome, but it sounds just like a lot of fun, <laughs> a lot of fun. <laughs> and now I think having that insight helps us kind of understand more about some of the things that you help organizations with. And one of these really fascinating concepts probably does stem from the fact you worked with a lot of people that are very creative, but you also worked with a lot of people that are analytical and a lot of people that are strategic and a lot of people that are trying to find new ways of doing things in the realm of innovation, yeah. um, whether it be in media and entertainment or, or even beyond that. And so you put together this amazing workshop you call Tight Roping. And it's an opportunity to help organizations think about how different types of thinkers can come together. But as you've gone about that, it sounds like you've also learned quite a bit that has helped you expand that view or find other opportunities. So why don't we talk a little bit about your inspiration behind tight roping and some of the things that you've learned as you've taken that journey? Yeah, I think, you know, we, we talk a lot in business about whole brain teams and about bringing together disparate opinions and things like that and different points of view. And the thing that I've discovered over time is that you know, the business training that we all get is still relatively narrow. Um, the gap between left and right brain in that environment can sometimes mean the least quantitative person becomes the creative in the, in the space. And so you're not really talking about a full cross-section of people and thinkers. And I think I've had, as you said, a chance, especially in media and in entertainment, to work on the far, far, far extremes of both of those. You know, working with creators, performers, artists, um, people who are pure, pure creatives um, in, in every sense of the word, not in a business sense of the word, but in a more global sense of the word, and business people, very analytic, very disciplined, very organized people. And so I think I've probably seen the, that gap at its widest in some cases. And so I think that experience over the last 20 years, plus the fact, I think it all came home for me at Cirque du Soleil, 
when I really got a view of how narrow even my experience was. I think my self-image was that I had a pretty broad circle of friends and colleagues, that I was pretty broad and open, that I was kind of this natural left brain, right brain thinker. And then I got to Cirque du Soleil and met people who were in clown school in Berlin when I was an undergrad. And it changed my perspective instantly about just how broad is broad. And I realized that even with the things that I'd seen and done, I was still living within a a sort of pie wedge, if, if you will, and that there was this whole world outside of that. And I think that's true for most people who really lean into traditional educations, who learn in a certain way, who've mastered the education process the way it works right now. And so I think this whole concept really came home for me when I really got to meet and interact and work with and and develop a whole new range of understanding and appreciation for these different kinds of geniuses. And so tightroping started specifically around trying to bridge that very, very wide gap between creative people and analytical people. And as you said, the the thought with the masterclass is to actually bring a curated set of people together from each side. You know, I wouldn't want to actually run the class with all creative thinkers, all analytical thinkers. I think part of the exercise is actually putting people together in the same room to have have one conversation and learn from each other. And what's happened since that launched and since I even started talking about tightroping is that other dimensions and other tensions have started to emerge. And I'm getting questions now about innovation versus staying the course, how you balance that, people versus profits, all these different kinds of inherent tensions that the business world deals with that come down in some ways to the same sort of analytical versus creative, conservative versus innovation sort of point. And, you know, I'm using the things that I've learned along the way to endow this this training program with some of those life lessons and also give participants a real ability to kind of explore it in a lab setting that's safe with people that can start to articulate these things. And hopefully folks will come away more able to, you know, not only become more productive inside their team, but better able to coexist with other departments around them, other functions in the business. And by doing so, you can also appreciate the big picture about your business and do a better job being connected to the larger mission and vision of the business itself. And at the far end, you know, once you've kind of gotten through those things and managed those things inside your own company, it's about finding new opportunities. And so there's sort of these stages of awakening around closing these gaps and using that diversity to create new opportunity, whether it's close into a department or a division within the company and then within the larger space that you work in. Yeah, there's so many important things you brought into that conversation, not even just stronger team dynamics and breaking down potential conflicts or potential silos between analytic thinkers versus creative thinkers, but also kind of rallying behind a common mission, a common goal. What is your organization about? What are you all coming together you know, to work together towards that common goal? Yeah. And that's where you start to see highly engaged teams highly motivated teams, and teams starting to appreciate the strengths of the people around them, and then leveraging those strengths differently, um, rather than focusing on the things they don't have in common or the things that might generate conflict, but uh, instead focusing on those things that bring them together towards that common mission. My favorite example of that, um, and I actually had a chance to do a project with them when I was at Deloitte, so it was kind of a, a kid in a candy store moment at Southwest Airlines. You know, I think we all know the, the value prop 
for the Southwest is, you know, low cost, low frills. Um, they simplify everything. But one of the most interesting things I remember um, hearing their founder, Herb Kelleher, say when he was asked about who their major airline competitor was. And he sort of smiled and said, we're not competing with airlines. We're competing with ground transportation. And think about how that reorients the entire company. Uh, think about how powerful in that one word, ground transportation, just how you shift your entire point of view about what it is you're there to do. And then Herb was famous for you know setting a tone inside the company that was light, that was fun. He dressed up on every holiday. He'd turn up randomly on the tarmac and barbecue for the baggage handlers. If you've flown Southwest, you've seen it in the personality that you're encouraged to show if you're a flight attendant, that you sing, you dance, you tell jokes. They are fascinating to me because they really do live it top to bottom. And, you know, and in, in doing a project for them, it was interesting to even have a chance to be in the headquarters. There are hallways full with walls that are 10 feet high of little frame snapshots of all sorts of events, whether it's the company anniversary or Halloween or the holidays, it just snapshots. I mean, some of them go back, they're little Polaroid instant pictures and they're framed, you know, and the walls are just lined top to bottom with all these just special moments, but like family moments, the kinds of pictures you'd have in a photo album for your own family. And also where they're located on the runway at Love Field in Dallas, you can literally watch Southwest Airlines planes taking off and landing from most of the offices. So they are literally right there on the edge and watching their product fly around all day. And it's fascinating how that culture just permeates wall to wall throughout that place. Everything from that that vision of of competing with ground transportation to all the personality things that 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 Herb really instilled and reinforced and lived day to day. It's just fascinating. It's like you're you're swimming in Southwest soup when you're there. It's all around you and it's maintained itself and sustained itself for so many years. It's really kind of amazing. And so once you get to that, you recognize that creating those kinds of environments aren't about just creating happy places for employees. It's something that is additive. And you create a spirit, you create energy, you create safety, you create um, a space where people are encouraged to be innovative and rewarded for being innovative, and it all spirals upwards. So it doesn't have to be just about stroking your employees and about making them happy, competitiveness and this kind of team spirit can go hand in hand for sure. Absolutely. And certainly Southwest is um, somewhat legendary for their culture. And I think a lot of companies hope to emulate that because it really has created, like you said, something that people live and breathe rather than just, you know, beer kegs and ping pong tables <laughs> in the break room. This is this is really a way of life that they've brought into their organization that people relate to. They see how they contribute to that mission, even through their own self-expression, which, which is pretty inspiring. Yeah, absolutely. So for leaders out there that might be really struggling in this area, maybe they're struggling with the conflict that they're seeing in their organization between people that think very differently or see the world very differently or even just trying to figure out how do you bring that out of your people? How do you get people engaged differently? Have them really connect to the company's mission on a very personal level, or even just feel comfortable and safe enough to bring themselves 
bring who they are to the workplace. What are some of the tips that you might provide a leader looking to head that direction? Sure. I think the first thing to recognize is that you're not alone. A majority of companies struggle with this. And if you really think about it, there's no training or official training to help you with this kind of management skill by and large. Learning the functional part of business, there are lots of ways to do that. There are lots of ways to learn the mechanics and the logistics of business. But we tend to neglect actually having conversations and helping people develop their muscles as managers, as leaders. It's an entirely different kind of skill than functional skill. And so I think the first thing is to, you know, really take that to heart and really seek out opportunities to stretch those muscles and recognize that everyone is sort of struggling along with this. So I think there's a certain amount of grace at first, which is the first point. Um, the other mindset shifts I think that are really important is recognizing that homogeneity is really an enemy of innovation. And I, I, I like to talk about the difference in the definition actually between invention and innovation. A lot of times we use those words interchangeably, and I think it's an, there's an important distinction between the two. Invention is about creating something from whole cloth, from scratch, creating something the world has never, ever seen before. And that's actually relatively rare. What happens most often and what has generated you know, growth in business for longer than invention has is innovation, which is really about connecting existing dots in new ways. So whether we're talking about Southwest, who certainly didn't create the airline industry or create air travel, but they connected different dots. Starbucks didn't create coffee for sure, but created a replicatable experience, a certain style, a certain flavor that is, you can count on getting that flavor coast to coast or around the world, wherever you find a Starbucks. Um, and there's so many other examples. Haagen-Dazs created premium ice cream in a category where ice cream was relatively low cost. Another one that I just love is Spanx. Spanx certainly didn't create the girdle, but Spanx reinvented the way you talk about it and positioning it and created an empire. And in many cases, these were companies, especially in the case of Spanx, that didn't get any love from investors. There was no energy in the market. There was no bidding war to help these companies come into being, but they had founders who really defended that. And so I think remembering that by design, innovation is challenging and may be uncomfortable and may be awkward when you connect two different things. But I think you really have to, to kind of embrace that and maybe recognize that when you're feeling uncomfortable, maybe you've hit the edge of your your comfort zone and that maybe you really are onto something. That's important. Uh, another piece of this puzzle is, is really understanding that we're all fighting uphill against our tribal tendencies. Um, we're all more comfortable with people that are like us. Um, you and I met and, and bonded over a lot of different things and experiences. And so, you know, that creates the basis for a relationship. But in a worst case scenario, you're cutting yourself off from a lot. And in, in the far end, at, at the very worst, it manifests as bigotry in, in an organization. And so we have to at least, again, like understanding that there's no training, you know, we also just have to recognize that we all have these tribal tendencies that we're, we're battling all the time. Everyone does. And then I think another thing that I've come to realize, and then what I've shared this with clients, I realize that this is something that 
isn't necessarily talked about openly. But we, another distinction, just like innovation and invention, is thinking about ignorance, pure ignorance about a topic versus having blind spots, which is a more extreme version of that. For example, I, ha- I worked with someone who admitted to me, just by happenstance, just because we sort of knew each other well enough to talk about it, that they had absolutely no ability to take a look at two different graphic designers' portfolios and tell the difference in the quality, in how appropriate or relevant it was for the project they were looking at. And he finally just said to me, you know, Alma, really, if it if it came to me and you asked me to make this decision, I'd pick this one because most of the pictures are blue and I like blue. And I realized in that moment that for all the things that I had been defensive about and sort of thinking that the people like him who were very, who was very quantitatively minded, that things that I thought they were dismissing outright. So, you know, not looking at the aesthetics, not looking at the, the emotional factors or the more qualitative elements of something, that it had to do with seeing it and dismissing it as something that wasn't important. I realized in that moment that he had a blind spot a complete blind spot and didn't even know what he didn't know. And so it's another important thing to recognize, just like I talked about those, you know, those comfort zones. And, you know, when it gets awkward that you might have a tip that you're onto something, I think it's important to realize that we don't really see things and aren't as broad as we actually think we are sometimes. And so I think to your question, shifting that mindset is really the first and most important thing. And then tactically, there are things you can do. This is something I did at Cirque du Soleil, for example, which is a wildly creative organization. I mean, you can only imagine sort of the types of people and the range of people, the full pie chart of people um, that work at Cirque. But I did something as simple that had never been done, which was to take every one of our shows. I was responsible for uh, sales and marketing for all the resident shows for Cirque. So all the shows in Vegas, Orlando, And I finally took my sales and marketing team, which is already a pretty broad group of people, also included ticketing and other business operations. All of that was on my team. And I would take any individual show, whether it was O or Ka or Michael Jackson, put it in the middle of the table and bring every discipline together for a team meeting about that show. So I would have sales, marketing, group sales, international sales, PR, ticketing, I'd have everyone around the same table. And we would have a regular meeting to look at these properties and talk about what we could do next. And what I discovered, and they'd never seen anything quite like this when we did it, it sounds like it could be really chaotic to have that many disciplines in one place. But in reality, what started to happen is that people knew when to lean in and start talking about their particular part of the agenda or their particular dimension of the show. And then they would naturally sort of recede back and become part of the audience. And then I'd have someone talking about our digital strategy and what we're doing there versus our traditional strategy with billboards and signage out on the streets in Vegas. And not only did it sort of naturally ebb and flow as different parts of the agenda came up, but what I discovered is that people started learning a little bit more about all these other disciplines. You can't expect everyone around the table to become an expert in all those different things. But everyone became a little more verbal about the thing that was across the hall from them that was a part of the puzzle 
they became able to connect dots a little bit better. The collaboration started to change when there was an idea. You knew who to call. You knew who to pick the phone up and call about something that was a notion that's kind of not something that you deal with, but I think I saw this thing that might be interesting. Those conversations started to happen in a way. So something is simple and it's something that you can do tomorrow. You can change the structure of these all-hands meetings and simply start creating a space where there's more cross-pollinization. That's something you can do tomorrow. Yeah, that's so very important. And I, I love how this kind of all comes together to really tell a great story around how do you build um, what I call grassroots innovation, bringing different people from different perspectives and different mindsets and different skills together, allow them to bring their Legos, everyone bring your Legos, put them out on the table and let's build something together. This is where you see a very powerful shifts in innovation or innovative thinking, like you said, mm -hmm. being disruptive. Uh, moving organizations forward into the future in a better way beyond just potential inventions or technologies that might support that or that you might be developing, being able to bring ideas together to really create a shift, create a change in mindset, and also broaden the perspectives of the people in the room, understanding there's different people that bring these things or fill those gaps that might not be a strength that I have, but maybe someone else in the room has the strength to help fill that gap that I might not have. It's a great point. You made me think of one other thing that's really important, especially for leaders of teams, which is recognizing that setting that table and creating that space for that conversation isn't completely enough. It's sort of like saying, I have an open door policy, come on down. Yeah. You have to recognize people don't very easily <laughs> walk into those doors or share those things. And I became very, very conscious, especially when I was meeting my team at Cirque for the first time, for example, that it, you know, I could say that, but they're still giving me the side eye, right? They're still going, yeah, let's see if she really means that. Yes. And so you have to actively demonstrate it regularly. In brainstorming sessions, you know, you'd hear that dreaded silence as we have an empty whiteboard, as we're brainstorming an idea. I would raise my hand and put the first bad idea on the table. I'm not afraid to do it. I'm not afraid to come up with something that's perfectly awful and be corrected. And basically, I would just start by, you know, I know, let's put signage on an elephant and walk the elephant down the street. Let's put that on the whiteboard. Now, if no one else has anything, we're going with the elephant. So if anybody can beat the elephant, let's go. <laughs> and people would just slowly but surely start to realize that I mean it. There's no shame in it. And if someone started, you know, eventually they knew that they could shoot down my ideas, like just groan or go, oh, no, no, all right, fine, withdrawn, forget it, forget it, forget it. You know, and you have to actively, especially if you're the leader, the power of that position is something that can overtake this entire process if you don't invite it actively. People are terrified to be wrong. They're terrified to be scolded. You, it's not just enough to say this is a safe space. You have to actively cultivate it. So I think your point is really, really well taken. Oh, yeah. Leaders that emulate those behaviors, psychological safety, uh, vulnerability, being okay with being wrong. I mean, I think it's so important. Like you said, fear permeates through so many different organizations. And if we kind of circle back to what we talked about at Southwest and the culture that they built, if you were able to remove the fear in every conference room and every interaction where people could bring their ideas and not really care if it makes them look bad or if it's wrong or if they will be, um, there will be consequences for having the wrong answer, that's when you start to see kind of the energy start to flow. People aren't held back. And so I love how you, you know, gave that example of demonstrating that vulnerability, kind of breaking the ice. And then also in turn, building trust 
uh, for the people around you, because that's also a very critical element uh, towards moving teams or, or getting them to work together a little bit better. Yeah, it's it's so important to have a, a a safe space to have a you know sort of a wall around your team. What I also see that can go wrong sometimes is you've got a leader who's appropriately aggressive, appropriately competitive. They're trying to fight and win in a tough market, so it's not an inappropriate emotion. But you lose sight of where to direct all that energy, and you always have to have. I think this is sort of an old trope, right? This idea of having an enemy. But in having an enemy on the outside, whether it's a competitor or some metric that you're working toward or some sales goal that you're working toward, whatever that thing is that you're fighting, you also absolutely have to create a space where within that circle, you're a team and it's something that is immutable. And I think sometimes leaders separate themselves from that team when times get tough because at some point, the fear and the pressure of whatever that competitive thing on the outside is causes you to turn it against your own folks. And at some point, you have to maintain the sanctity of that grouping. I hesitate to use the word family because I don't think businesses should be or, or really are your family. But there is something to be said for the comfort of knowing that once we are inside these four walls, once we are in this particular grouping or particular gathering, that we are together. And that good, bad, and different, this is where we can share that stuff. This is where we can work that stuff out. You know, I had a number of incidents with my teams at CERC and other places where another department might have done something to either be insulting. I had cases where, you know, big group emails would go out blasting someone on my team for something. And my first instinct was always to start with the idea, like mothers who, you, you know, I'll, I'll correct my children, you can't correct my children. You know, if you have a problem, if there's something that comes out of my team that's a problem, bring it to me. You don't berate that person in public. And whether or not it was even true or not, I didn't really care, but I was bound to determine to set a working relationship between other people in my team that said, we're going to just be respectful. Things are going to go wrong. And I'll worry later about whether it was right, wrong, whose fault it was, and we'll correct that. But we're not going to have this kind of infighting and sniping. And, and it was amazing how when I jumped in and said, you know, why don't you direct that to me first? It's amazing how a lot of the sniping stopped. I, and I never heard about it again. But it taught my team that I was willing to take a kind of principled stand about the way we were going to work together. And that if we were going to solve something, we were going to solve it back at home inside the team and not adjudicate it out on the field for every other department and everybody else in the company to see it was unnecessary. You know, some things go wrong, things go wrong and you fix those things. But that's not done often enough. And that's what I mean about that separation. You can you sometimes see leaders then get in between now whatever's on the outside and their team, and then they form a third island where they're trying to insulate themselves from the problem. When in fact, you're in it with them. If something went wrong, you're in it with them. And just like you were talking about the need to be vulnerable, you know, you have to step up and take responsibility for the things that happen on your watch with your team. It's, it's just there's no one else to point that towards. So if you're now there in this third position, now pointing guns at both groups, you know, this will never get resolved and your team feels betrayed at the same time. Right. I think even just reframing it in that way gets people to think differently about it. You know, if you're looking for a means to an end, if you're looking for an outcome, 
the outcome will be better if your team trusts you, they trust the environment that they're in, if they feel like they can make mistakes and they will see another day. Uh, those are critical aspects to being able to move forward. It also allows you to resolve conflict more quickly. Right, right. So it doesn't fester or kind of continue on where that inner team conflict can create huge barriers to progress. And so I love that you made that point. But I think one of the things that we talk a lot about too is how do you know people a little bit better? How do you understand people's perspectives? And one of the tools that a lot of organizations use, different personality profiles or thinking profiles to understand you know, how people tick, how people see the world, their perspective and so forth. And so you had me do the ambassador profile. So I completed the ambassador profile uh, for Alma and I got my results just last night. And uh, I was, I am being vulnerable enough to talk about that on the show today. So, <laughs> um, and can I, tell me one of the things that makes the ambassador profile a little bit different than some other uh, personality profiles that organizations might be familiar with. Sure. Uh, I love this profile. I've said before that, you know, I, I've taken the Myers-Briggs maybe a dozen times or more. And with no shade intended to the Myers-Briggs instrument itself, I still don't know what to do with the label. I've been an ENTJ forever, and I don't know what to do with that. I can say the letters, and you could probably say your letters, and other people right now are thinking about their letters. I really don't know what to do other than going back and reading the profile. And what I love about the Bassador, which was created by um, a professor from McMaster University in Ontario, who came out of R&D at Procter & Gamble, holds several patents and brought a lot of products to market. So he had a lot of real world experience. And then he got very deeply into this idea of how to map and create harmony inside teams. And so what I love about it is that it is mapped almost one for one to the stages of any project. And so by taking the short inventory, which you took was, it's about 15 minutes, right? 15 or 20 minutes. Yeah, it's about right. It's, it's relatively short, relatively simple questions. But what it gives you is a map of where you sit in the order of things and where your typical orientation is when it comes to solving problems. And the stages of a project and the place that you fit in this sort of wheel correspond to each other. So at the beginning of a project, there's ideation. So that's the generator. The profile is called generator. And then as you move around kind of in a clockwise way, you move from generating ideas to sort of shaping the ideas to building a plan to implementing the ideas. And then if you think about it, as you come around on a wheel, if you'll imagine a four quadrant wheel, as you get back up to 12 o'clock, after a project's been implemented and has been moving for a while, you may want to go back and revisit it and make revisions, make notes, make, make edits, you sort of go back into a generator mode, back into a conceptualizing mode, back into planning and back into implementation. So this wheel and this cycle can happen several times as well. And so the four personality types, again, generator, conceptualizer, optimizer, implementer, all coexist at the same time in this space. And it also really dispels the idea that any one of these is sexier or more important than the others. What you find, for example, is that generators, the first stage, the people who are prolific brainstormers, who are really great at the ideation part, get a lot of attention 
and are generally considered the innovators, the visionaries. But generators can be terribly disruptive once there's a plan in place and once you've sort of chosen a direction. It's not the time to keep spewing wildly and coming up with new ideas. At some point, you need to kind of move into an execution phase that gets tighter and more disciplined to the point where it can it, it can be implemented. And what you can do with the Bassiter is not only what we'll talk about with your individual profile, but what I love to do is to have multiple people on a team and in a department take the profile and map to see where you're lopsided in your organization. I've seen companies that were almost 90% generators with no downstream folks that can actually make things happen. Goodness. Oh, God. And yeah. I've seen it just the other way, completely execution driven with people who are waiting for the idea to take shape and be formulated and just sort of waiting with a catcher's mitt to have the idea come down the road so that they can take it and shape it and optimize it and know people on the generator side. So those are extremes, but you can very quickly see what the makeup of that team is. And by the way, I've taken the Bassiter myself probably four times in 20 years, and it doesn't change. These are core things, and it's a core organic orientation that you have toward problem solving. Not that you can't be good at getting things done if you're a generator, but you have a natural skew and a natural home base for yourself. Now, interestingly, Rebecca, in looking at your ambassador, you are almost dead center in the middle of all of these. Now, you technically tip into the conceptualizer space, which is that second space in the wheel. So you're the bridge between the generators, the idea rats, and the, and the prolific brainstormers, and the people actually building the detailed plan. You're the one in the middle that translates that. And actually, I'm a conceptualizer too. I sort of, not surprisingly, sort of live in that space too, between the wild, wild blue sky idea, and then sort of bringing that to life a little bit. And it also corresponds to the phase of a project. I would say about you, if you had a team of five people, and let's say you have all four of the types on your team, you would be great once the whiteboarding is all done and it's a big mess and there are thought bubbles and things on in parking lots and there's paper all over the walls. You'd probably be the best person to now be the one to kind of synthesize everything that you're seeing and prioritize it and make some sense out of it, create some themes, create some buckets. And then after that, it would be nice to pass that baton to someone who's more of an optimizer to really do the plan, someone who lives to do the actual business planning, the Gantt charting and all of that. And then the baton gets passed again. And so with the team, what's great about the ambassador is that you can start to have the language to describe each other. You can understand where the rifts are and where the tensions might be. Again, between, you know, people look at generators and think they just talk too much <laughs> just that they don't really do anything. They're just there talking, making up ideas. On the other side, generators look at optimizers and implementers and say, oh, they're too rigid. You know, they're not creative. And so I, I've seen it work. You know, one of my companies where I actually learned about uh, the Bassiter, which was Scient, one of the e-business consulting firms back in the 90s, this was mandatory for every single one of our startup clients. It was just a part of our process, but we wouldn't let a founding team come in without having them go through the ambassador inventory and sort of take time to understand the makeup of their team. And so I've just used that for years and years. It's still, I still haven't found anything better to do that. And it's very simple. So you're almost a dead center. You're very evenly balanced in these four quadrants, but you tend toward that conceptualizer 
And I think the fact that you have an egg-shaped <laughs> kind of space in each one of these quadrants means that you're very able to interact with those other quadrants very, very easily and see the differences in each of these stages. You'd be a good project manager to sort of sit in the center of that and sort of direct the traffic of the project because you sort of understand each of the phases kind of instinctively. It's unusual to be that close to the center, but it gives you kind of this, the broadest overview of all, even though you have a slightly, you know, you tip slightly toward that conceptualizer side. So I don't think there's anything to be nervous about or to be um, <laughs> in terms of uh, the findings. Again, there's no right or wrong answer. It's literally just about where you sit and having a better understanding of why you approach things the way you do. And once you have it um, and have that language and other people have that language, it really just helps to, um, to move things along and just help people understand where the conflicts are starting. When they, when they emerge, you start to understand why these two people are butting heads because they're just looking at the problem in a completely different way. Yeah, it's so interesting because I have served in the capacity of, let's say, translator or kind of middleman or whatever you might say, where you take kind of some of the ideas that I get from the generators or that sometimes really, because I'm so close as you see the line, and I'm going to post this out on LinkedIn when I publish the episode so other people can see what we're talking about because I am pretty close to the middle. And I got to say, on a lot of personality profiles, I seem to end up towards the middle somehow. So I don't, That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, it is super interesting. I think there's some challenges to that. I think people sometimes have a hard time figuring me out, <laughs> but it does allow me to have some level of flexibility and understanding for people who are different than me, I think, is how I translate that. But I definitely have been kind of in that generator space, which I'm super close to. I've can definitely relate to being conceptualizer. I've done some optimizer work in my career. Uh, I think when it comes to being the implementer, I definitely shy away from that. That's not what I enjoy as much. Um, so I'm happy to let someone else do that part and allow me to get back to kind of taking and curating ideas uh, into something meaningful. I love strategic work, for instance. I find it very exciting. Exactly. You know, I like to find opportunities for us to take either new ideas or new objectives and find ways for us to make a difference you know, in the context in which I'm working. So I think a lot of this makes a whole lot of sense to me. Um, so I'm really glad to have taken it. And thanks for kind of walking us through my results. And I guess that I'll post this out on on LinkedIn once we publish the episode so other folks can can take a look at it and and uh, see what this might be about. Great. No, great. And I, and again, and since we're both sisters in uh, in our conceptualizer mode, I think for listeners to think about people they've met who are true optimizers and implementers. You know, I think we both have the benefit of working with this folks. It's amazing the joy a Gantt chart brings them. Yeah. You know, they these are the people who no matter what they're doing, it could be the holidays, it could be a wedding, there is a Gantt chart involved and there's a to-do list and it's organized and they take joy in it, they take comfort in it. And I say they because it's it really is a special kind of orientation to really be fulfilled by that sense of organization in a way that it might seem stifling to us. You know, to have it too rigid and too organized to start might be something that actually is a turnoff to us. It's literally a home base ability. And I have tendencies toward it. You know, it's it's funny when I do my work, Rebecca, it, there are moments when I'm freeforming and I want a pen and paper and a whiteboard or, you know, I want it to be loose. There's a moment when I'm doing strategy, when I go back to a spreadsheet, not be not to do the math of it, but just to look at the symmetry of it. And to realize that, okay, we've got these four things we're trying to do. We've got 10,000 ideas in the fourth column. 
and no ideas in the first three. And there's something about the symmetry of a spreadsheet for me. And I think this is about being that bridge person, right? This is really literally the bridge between being a generator and optimizer. I really do want to see that we've covered all the bases and that we're not lopsided in some way. And so I use spreadsheets to do that because cells don't lie. You know, the 90 degree cells do not lie. And it's funny how I, you know, so I, I'm half PowerPoint, I'm half Excel. <laughs> it's kind of, a, you know, that's how my brain literally functions. And it just depends on what stage we're in. And so when you meet people who really love these things, what, what I find with the Bassador too, they sit up a little straighter, whatever their orientation is, you, you know, you just sort of own it and, and, and start to enjoy the fact that this is your superpower. This is the thing you bring to the table and it's just as valuable as the showier parts of this process, you know? Um, and when you start to see that and start to feel that back to what we've been, you know, some, to your earlier point, that's the moment where teams really come alive and, and the, they, they become electric because everyone is basking in their own superpower and just letting it rip without feeling judged by it. You know, it's, that's, that's one of those important and magical moments when you really start to tune up a team. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thanks for, again for walking through that with me. Sure. And I think it is good to think about the true benefits of having different types of thinkers on your team or different people with different perspectives and experiences. So I'm going to shift gears for a second. And uh, one of the things I'd like to ask my guests is about the future. So I'd love to know what makes you potentially concerned about our future. Well, I, I think building on what you just said about diversity, diversity in all forms, we need big ideas now more than we ever have before. I think just about every type of challenge is in front of us. It's it's almost overwhelming. And I think we would have said that a year ago. We would have said that 10 years ago. But we are really in a moment where we're tipping at a really critical crossroads in so many different ways. And if I have a concern, it's that the defensiveness and the polarization and the divisiveness is something that could set us back 100 years if we're not careful. We've always needed innovation. We've always needed fresh thinking, but we seriously need all of our best athletes on the field at this this moment in time. And the divisions and things that start to calcify, you know, when politics come into play and when, when fear comes into play. I mean, some of the polarization has a lot to do with people being just frightened about their future. And they are sincere in their belief that their tightly calcified position is important. But we have to find middle space again that not only, as we've been talking about, releases that innovation that can happen within organizations, within cultures, within societies, but we have to be willing to let go and reach toward that middle. And if I have a concern, it's that, again, we've become rewound so tightly that it somehow becomes permanent. You know how your mother would say, if you keep making that face, it's going to stay that way. <laughs> you know, Are we reaching the point where we can't undo that for our own sakes? And so I really have deep concerns that all of those things that are now dividing us will manifest themselves everywhere and that you just can't quite reach for each other. Again, I try to stay optimistic, but given how Some of the other points that we talked about, things like training, things like the way organizations are structured themselves. We've got a lot of functional and structural things working against us 
that are creating these headwinds. And so things need to change. And so I worry that the change that needs to happen is, is too jarring for most people. And I'm just hopeful. And I, again, I try to keep my head up because otherwise I think I just stay under the covers all day. I think seeing it and feeling the tension is something that we all know in our guts. Instinctively, we know is just not a, a mode that we want to live in. And that hopefully hitting bottom with some of those things will, will cause us to bounce a little bit and start to realize that you know we have to just think and act differently going forward. Yeah, certainly the level of discord that that we're experiencing at the moment is difficult. And I think a lot of us feel the same way that you do. It certainly is a, is a concern that I have as well. And it's really interesting to think about how our conversation that we had around, you know, inclusive conversations, let's say, bringing different people with different viewpoints and perspectives together to have honest and meaningful conversations. And then also finding those things that we share uh, the goals that we share, the things that are the values that we share, the things that are important to us, because that often gets forgotten. When we think about our extremes or our extreme the extremities of our views that differ. We forget about those things that bring us together. We forget about those things we have in common. Um, so hopefully uh, we do get back to that place where if we're talking about here in the U.S., having us come together and feel like a nation together uh, instead of divided uh, sometime soon. So let's talk about that. You said you have a little bit of optimism. That always um, is a good thing to talk about in these moments as well. So why don't we talk a little bit about what makes you optimistic about the future? Well, given everything that we just talked about, right, um, I could say nothing. Um, I could easily say there's nothing to be optimistic about. But I do think that the upside of this, if there is a silver lining to fragmentation and unhappiness and disenfranchisement, right? is that people on the outside looking in are forced to innovate. And that's been true around the world. It's been true in this country. And I think now, you know, whether you're talking about Gen Zs who can't get a foothold in traditional companies, who are saddled with debt, they're interesting, they're the most educated and most underemployed generation we've ever seen. If that combination propels them to strike out on their own, or if women who have been shut out of traditional financing pipelines set out to do something another way, you know, or you have people of color who've just said, I'm not represented, I'm not seeing myself, so I'm going to create a new business, I'm going to create a new lifestyle brand, I'm going to tell stories and make music that's outside of whatever that mainstream is. I think that there can be some power in the fact that we have more tools, the fact that we have more resources, that we have more connectivity than not, which is obviously a double-edged sword that can propel the divisiveness, those same tools can be used to just go around whatever the mainstream has been and whatever the rules are. And so I have a lot of optimism about young people, whether they are consciously embracing that innovation, or they just feel like they've been pushed <laughs> and have no other choice but to innovate, whatever gets you there. I have a lot of optimism about their perspective, about their openness, by and large, as a group. I, and I also have a lot of optimism about their guts and their toughness. I remember watching, riveted to the television, watching the kids from Parkland, Florida take over Washington, D.C., drop out of, of high school, take gap years to bear down on a topic that was so visceral and so real for them. 
it's remarkable to watch the maturity. These are kids that, without getting into the psychology of millennials and boomers and Gen Z, but we talk about millennials in gross generalizations about them being coddled, right? And being soft. And I think, as I've studied it and read about it, what I find fascinating is that I read one psychologist who said it really all depends on where you were and how old you were on 9-11. And if you were eight or nine or 10 on 9-11 and your parents had a absolutely reasonable sense about just wrapping you in bubble wrap and taking care of you in the face of this very terrifying world, the instinct to do what became, you know, helicopter parenting and all that stuff was born out of a place of real fear for your own children for the future. And so those kids got wrapped in bubble wrap and didn't experience the world in the same way. What's fascinating about Gen Zs, who are largely teenagers right now, is that for better or for worse, they grew up in a world from the first day of school with active shooter drills. And these things that are so terrifying and so real and so visceral, but we couldn't shield them from it anymore. We couldn't wrap them in bubble wrap anymore. Their world has been terrifying in lots of ways, from things like the potential for shootings in schools to climate change. They are, as a group, as a general group, that Parkland group of kids are representative of this kind of sober reality mixed with optimism, mixed with action. There's something about them that's more than just fretting about it. These are the kids that take action. And I've even seen with friends of mine, I sort of informally poll my friends about that difference. And one friend said to me, I have two daughters. One is a, is a millennial, one is a, is a Gen Z. And the millennial thinks deeply about things and protests and posts on Facebook or, you know, or tweets and speaks about it with her friends and she thinks about it. My Gen Zer takes action. She's the one who rallied us and said, okay, family, no more plastic bags. She has forbidden us from flushing the toilets because we're wasting water. So I just have to run around to make sure people are coming over that the toilets are flushed. She's active. She's a general and she rallies the family and she takes action against these things that she thinks about. And she said, I literally have one of each and they literally fall right into those categories. And I think it's one of the best examples of this, this thing that does make me very optimistic about younger people, what they've seen, what they've experienced, and sort of the grit that's come from everything that we just talked about that was terrible. They've developed a certain grit and edge about it, combined with a passion for change that really is remarkable and really does give me hope because they're behind us. They have our backs. And so I try to stay focused on them and as, as often as I can just help to support that crew of people because they're bringing the freshest ideas. They're not beholden to the system in a way that I think I was coming up as, a, as an exer. You know, there were no startups. Startup culture didn't really exist. And so the only thing you could do was sort of model yourself into the corporate space if you wanted to go into business. There was more of a willingness when I was their age to just start to conform into that and try and make your way in that system. For them, they're not getting the same job offers. They're not getting the promise of a job that they'll have for 40 years. They're being kind of booted out of the system before they even get started and then starting their life with a mortgage, essentially with college debt. So I think 
they are free agents in a way that probably you and I weren't at their age. And I think good things can come from that free agency. Oh, yeah. I also very encouraged and optimistic about Gen Z. I've got four of them of my own. My oldest might argue with me whether he's a younger millennial, but I won't get into that. (laughs) He's 22. But I got to talk about my 14-year-old because she's the one you talk about, your friend that has the general. My 14-year-old is that. And she really does rally us around causes and she wants to make a difference. And she really thinks very deeply about that. And I encourage her to. I encourage her to make a difference. But I think one of the things that we have to be cautious of, and me as a fellow Gen Xer, when we grew up in what I call the get over it generation, right? <laughs> where we were told to get over it our whole lives, right? Yeah, yeah, it's exactly true. Yeah. And as we entered the workforce, we got the message that your new ideas and your new way of doing things aren't wanted here. We've done it this way forever. We're just going to keep doing it this way. You conform, you keep your head down, you do your work, and you're going to get rewarded for that. And that is the message that our generation got when we entered the workforce. And Generation Z is entering the workforce now. And we have this amazing opportunity not to discourage them, Yes, allow them to make mistakes because they will, just like we would have back then with the the ideas that we thought were fabulous. We allow them to make the mistakes, make them feel safe in the environment in which they're working. And nonconformity needs to be rewarded, not discouraged. And I think one of the things we also need to be cautious of is older generations. Even though I hate to call us older generations. But technically we are, so I think we just have to own that. We are. (laughs) We have to accept it. You're right. I just need to to accept that part of myself as I get older. But here's the thing. We can learn from their example. And we don't have to wait for them to come up through the ranks to make the changes. Here's this opportunity for us to recognize these qualities in the younger folks that are coming up not only enabling the environment where they can be able to make a difference through their ideas and their passion and their motivation. But we need to find that piece of us that used to exist back when we were 20 or back in our teens when we really cared and had great ideas, regardless of where they shut down then. Here's this opportunity for us to look at how we make a difference today and even maybe being inspired by those that are younger than us or even our own children. So I want to put that call to action out there. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, when I talk to college students, I always remind them because it feels so silly, but I remind them that their understanding of things like social media gives them a superpower at 22. Yeah. And I remind them that, remember, your boss is essentially your mom's age. And so yeah. your boss knows much, as much about social media and technology as your mom does, pretty much. So even if you don't think you want to be a social digital uh, specialist going forward, you have to recognize that even when you're new to the workforce, you have insights and things that you know about. You know about your demographic group. You know about college kids and what they like and what they don't like. That's important to companies who sell things to you and your friends. Um, those kinds of insights are valuable. And so you have to mine it for that. And I couldn't agree with you more. I love that in my literal friend set, not just my acquaintances and colleagues, in my friend set, I think I have someone from every generation, you know, every age group is somewhere in that mix from teenagers. Literally, I just met a young woman who's a 16 year old entrepreneur. 
I was introduced to her to give her advice about college. And I'm thinking to myself, what am I going to say to you? You're starting your second business and you're 16. Um, I learn a ton from her. She considers me a mentor and I just sort of roll my eyes and kind of laugh. But having her in my life, having the college students and 30 somethings in my life and, you know, 70 and 80 year olds in my life at the same time. I think what she said is it just sparked me. I, I think that's so important because that's how the learning continues. That's how you're able to just stay in touch with these parts of yourself that we all lament losing as we get older and we cry about. I mean, just have conversations with these folks, invite them into your circle non-judgmentally, and you learn things, you, you gain new perspectives. It's all part of keeping your brain stretched out. So I agree completely. Awesome. So we've got some important work for you out there, folks, to get involved in shaping the future and doing some things that are meaningful for making a big difference, leveraging diversity, bringing teams together towards common goals, trying to understand each other a little bit better so we can work together to build this better future that we see for ourselves. So nobody has any more excuses. We have given you none. (laughs) Exactly. So go out there and make a difference. And however you do that, bring your strengths, your ideas, and talk to other folks and bring people together to make a difference in the world. So Alma Derricks, thank you for a phenomenal conversation today. I'm so glad you joined me. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Alma thinks deeply about the strengths and contributions of team members, both within her own teams and those of her clients. Understanding our backgrounds, our tendencies, and our superpowers allows us to better come together to create the magic of innovation in high-functioning teams. It can also allow us to build an understanding of one another, better resolve conflict, and help others see a new perspective that they may not have considered. This is also the magic of diversity of thought, allowing for an understanding of others who may have a different way to process the world around them, allowing for their inclusion so that they can shine in the moments that play to their strengths. Alma had me take the Bassiter Profile, a test she's used for years to help teams understand one another better so that they can come together and innovate more effectively. I've attached my results to the episode notes in case you'd like to check them out. I decided to share my results because I believe we should share what we know about ourselves so that others can feel free to do the same. So, what do you know about yourself? This doesn't need to be something you learn from a test, but can be based on a deep understanding of what makes you, you. How have your experiences shaped you? What gets under your skin? And, most importantly, what makes you shine and work at your best? Now, couple that with an understanding of those around you. Understanding that differences are a good thing. And having varied perspectives and strengths contribute to the magic of high-functioning teams. This can result in forward strides of innovation and more meaningful connection with those around you. Better experiences and better results. Who wouldn't want that? So, go on. Go help shape the future. To learn more about Alma and her company, Rev, visit Rev.LA. That's Rev.LA. While you're there, head over to the tab labeled Circles to check out her amazing tightroping masterclass. I'm Rebecca Scott, and this has been Humans Now and Then. Hosted and produced by Rebecca Scott. Episode notes can be found at humansnowandthen.com. Thank you for listening.